Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Cable Guy. A lonely and mentally disturbed cable guy raised on television just wants a new friend. But his target, a designer, rejects him with bad consequences. Okay, it's finally my turn. Diana, why the hell didn't you see this movie? <laughs> okay, so... I feel like this movie definitely fell into the mom had to see it first to decide whether or not we could see it because Jim Carrey was funny, but he was definitely tended to go inappropriate. And usually we could win my mom over if it was funny, like didn't matter if it was inappropriate because it was just too funny to deny. But I feel like this was probably one of those. And then it just didn't happen. And I just never cared to follow up on it. So I didn't. Jim Carrey was my introduction to PG-13 films. Ooh. The Mask was the first PG-13 movie I ever saw. That's just sad. Uh, Shut it. I got to see Dumb and Dumber (laughs) right after that. Uh, My brother and I love Dumb and Dumber. And Dumb and Dumber is a classic comedy that will forever live on into the greatest annals of history i, I mean, mean honestly amazing. i cannot wait until we can show that to our children it's right it's incredible it's truly so, perfect though we are gonna have to listen to the mockingbird song oh the live long day of course we are this movie was in heavy heavy vhs rotation for me mm. yes i am <laughs> of the vhs generation and this one we're gonna get into it i secretly love this movie I really like this movie. I know it's not the smartest movie. I know it's not great, but I think it has a point of view and it goes for it. And I still really enjoy it for that. Mm -hmm. And I loved it in the past because it was different. Nobody did a comedy like this for a long time for reasons we'll kind of get into. Yeah, because it's definitely a dark comedy incredibly dark mm-hmm. um sometimes i forget how dark it goes mm-hmm. but that's why i think i was drawn to it was because up until that point and for a while after because i was a kid i didn't see a whole lot of movies that would push this dark while being a very dumb comedy yeah and it stuck with me at the time now i just go I'm amazed this movie got made in 1996, and Mm -hmm. I kind of still love that it went for it. Okay. I think this movie has a hard time getting made today the same, but I don't know that I feel like it went for it. Well, okay. Define went for it for you. Well, no, you define. You're the one saying it really went for it. What is it going for? The movie is not good. It's a satire. It's a pure satire of... Of constant what? television watching. Mm, not exactly. On the one hand, it feels like it's trying to do that, but then it's also trying to be a play on a stalker uh, story, and it's just not. Oh, but I think it is. Here's the thing I fully identify with the whole like raised by television, all of everything that comes out of his mouth is a reference to television. But the problem is they didn't tie that to it enough. They never pointed back to it. They also didn't do what you needed for this character. And that was for him to not get the point of those shows, to not realize that maybe the people that he's identifying with from his shows were the bad guys or things didn't turn out too well for them in the end because maybe he never saw the end of some of those things. It's just really inconsistent. Um, it is not intelligent on any plane. <laughs> it, it is a lowest common denominator script. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you that. And mm-hmm. I, I honestly think a lot of this is the studio was so uptight about a comedy like this. Mm-hmm. And there, there's good reason for them to be uptight about this movie. This is the type of movie that I wonder, okay, what do you do differently? And I, I would agree with you there. I, th- I do think that the references they pull, they're all television references, but they don't tie back to any bigger picture for him. No, there's not um, like a thread we're pulling. 
or it's not like he's only identifying with the most innocent of characters in, in television and film that he watched on TV. Well, and to be fair, he is, right? Like, all the names he gives are the father protagonist figures. Yes, it's all the dads, and I get that, but... That, again, it's the lowest common denominator. Like, why isn't he identifying more with the kids in those shows where they had a a different family dynamic? Again, it just doesn't make any sense. In a moment where this was going to be considered a big budget movie, Mm -hmm. they were not only willing to be dark, but they were willing to try to push it in terms of, of what they wanted to comment on. And as we talk about the writing process and how this went, I think the studio and then the inexperience of all the people involved in the creative side rolled it back in to where mm-hmm. it became the mess that it is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's a messy movie for sure. But I do think if they let them figure it out and really treated this as this is a really cool project and let's really develop it, mm-hmm. I think we might have gotten that. Yeah. I really think it comes down to this is a first draft of a story. <laughs> and it's a, it's I'm fine with the concept. Like that the concept of, you know, you meet a cable guy, he does you a favor, all of a sudden he's in your life. Just that and it, and then that relationship gets out of hand. That's a great concept. I'm into it. But yeah, it's a first draft. Because it doesn't go deeper. It doesn't start out innocent and then start to escalate. It just goes from zero to 60. And again, I know this is a comedy, but it's also supposed to be a dark comedy. And they're trying to play a little bit with the thriller suspense tropes, but they don't go for any of that really well. The only time where I feel like they really played with that is when he all of a sudden cuts things off. But like it lasts for like five seconds. So no. yeah, let's let's talk about the creative decisions here, and and it okay. it in a lot of ways boils down to money. Mm-hmm. The budget for this film was forty seven million dollars. Okay, that's gonna sound like a lot, but we'll explain why it's that high momentarily. Globally, it grossed one hundred and three million dollars. Yep, it did fine. It didn't do great. It didn't do blockbuster, but mm-hmm. it did fine. Mm-hmm which is also going to come into play as we talk through this. Okay. Just some main production notes. This film is probably the original Frat Pack film because it involves Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Judd Apatow, and Owen Wilson, all very at the beginning before they were all like actual super best buds putting each other in each other's movies. Mm -hmm. Old School's really the first like official Frat Pack film by everybody's standards, but this is the very start of it. Yeah. Um especially with everybody involved. Mm -hmm. The script was the subject of a bidding war between studios. Columbia wound up winning it for $1 million. Hmm. But near half the budget went to Jim Carrey, who at that time commanded the highest ever salary of $20 million for a comedic actor. Yep. This all came down to agents and negotiations. (laughs) And... I mean, Jim was a superstar at this point. After Ace Ventura, he was unstoppable. Like, he was your go-to comedy guy. And he couldn't miss. We'll give his credits later, because this is, funnily enough, the first time we've ever talked about Jim Carrey on the show. But it was. It was a string of massive hit after massive hit. Mm -hmm. And so this commanded a huge price. Sure. Matthew Broderick in turn, who is not a scrub. This is a big actor. He only got $2 million for this movie. Which I feel like is a little insulting to Matthew Broderick because the man, it's Ferris fucking Bueller, okay? The dude knows what he's doing when he shows up on a screen and he does his part well. I do understand him, his character, not him, his character being paid slightly less because the movie hinges on the cable guy. Well, and it's it's also all about like what you've been doing and market status and stuff. But I mean, it was, you know, Jim Carrey was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at this point. He got paid a tenth of what his co-star got paid. No, that's a little insulting. If he'd gotten ten million dollars and Jim got 20, it'd be like, all right, that tracks even five. Jim Carrey is making Tom Cruise money here because he is a Tom Cruise level star in comedies. Oh, I agree. 
Jim Carrey insisted that his attorney and managers wear Ace Ventura dressing gowns while negotiating the salary to not lose their sense of perspective. I love that. (laughs) Because we know he wasn't paid very much for Ace Ventura. He wasn't. This is a man who's just like, y'all are about to negotiate a $20 million salary for me. Can we please maintain some realness? Well, not only is it that, but it's like, Nobody believed in me when we did this. And look at what happened. This is what I bring to the table. Let's remember that. That's important. I mean, the perspective is good. So we came from this is where we're going. This is a big fucking deal. We can do this. Do it. <laughs> and also, I, I do I do appreciate here and and he's gone through his fair share of crap. Sure. And just like him going, hey guys, can we like remind ourselves how crazy this is that we're about to do this (laughs) we don't know it could have been a power play it could have been a perspective thing it could have been all of those it it could have been none of those it could have just been like i'm the boss so you're gonna do this (laughs) or also i'm having a fucking weird day do this because you work for me well it could have been his own power trip whatever it's interesting to think about the possible reasons why that is very funny and interesting Now, again, the studio showed that it wasn't real confident in this film. It didn't use a major marketing campaign for the uh, for the film itself. Mm -hmm. But like we said, one hundred three million dollars to a forty seven million budget. Yeah, that's only double the money, especially when you paid all that to Jim Carrey. But it's still a relative success. Mm -hmm. However, rival studios and production companies were so pissed off about them resetting the market with Jim on that salary that they dedicated press campaigns to trying to say this was a flop. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons why it's been regarded as a failure for so long is because of all the press around it. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the giant success that his other films were at the time, but it did well. The press gambit, though, worked so well, the studio actually tried to change the poster at one point from the iconic image of him with a cut cable cord to a mm-hmm. scene of the fight at medieval times, mm-hmm. it did nothing. <laughs> yeah. This was all just obfuscation and power plays. And this movie, I think, got overshadowed by the fact that the studio went to bat to pay this man this much money. And everybody was trying to make sure, oh, God, we've got to make a movie that everyone will be okay with. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that both Jim and the creative team were interested in making a dark story. Okay. So let's talk about our writing. Okay. Now we have two writers, but only one credited. Okay. Credited is a gentleman named Lou Holtz Jr. There's nothing about this guy. This is his only ever writing credit. Okay. He apparently had the idea while he was working as a prosecutor in LA and said he'd seen a cable employee in the hall of his mother's apartment building and thought, quote, what's he doing here so late, unquote. Fair. Interesting. Now, according to almost everyone but Holtz, Mm -hmm. the real writer of this film, who is listed as a producer, is one Judd Apatow. (laughs) He was denied screenwriting credit by the Writers Guild, but he challenged it, claiming he wrote most of the dialogue and many of the scenes. He was backed by Ben Stiller and a lot of the different people, Mm -hmm. but the challenge was intense. He did not get credit on the final film, but uh, if it meant anything, he did get credit in the novelization as a writer. (laughs) Okay. So he at least got that post-fact, but uh, according to Ben Stiller, Holtz's version was basically a silly buddy comedy, and Apatow revised it to make it much, much bleaker at the request of Jim Carrey. They wanted to make, quote, a funny version of the classic stalker films, unquote. Mm, okay. Apatow also stated that in the original script, there was no physical humor for Jim Carrey. Okay. I mean, which is just like, what were you going to do? I mean, why would you hire Jim Carrey if there's nothing physical? To be fair, Lou might have written the script before Jim Carrey was attached. So sure. And that's, that's totally fair, but that definitely has to be something that is added for a at this time Jim Carrey role. Well, and in some of the trivia and and we it we'll talk about it just for some fun writing stuff, but like they went to meet Jim Carrey while he was doing Ace Ventura 2. Mhm. So, I think this was developed with Judd and Ben Stiller and Jim Carrey all working on the script together. They saw the Colonel and went 
whoa. We can run with this. We can run in a whole bigger direction. And that became the thing. Carrie, for his part, really loved the final script itself. He called it Hitchcock meets Jerry Lewis and Rosemary's Baby meets The Odd Couple. (laughs) So they wanted it to be dark. And, And that's fine. And I think everybody was so scared of that price tag mm-hmm. that they then tried to rein it in and make a four quadrant. And that is that is definitely a losing formula for most films. Yeah, and, and this is going to be one of those situations where I don't think there's one person to blame here. No, but the film we got feels like a first draft. Weirdly, I think it's actually like a 19th draft. Well, yeah, but then it's definitely a combination of too many cooks and trying to please too to to please too many different demographics, and it's just never going to work. I think so. I I loved it as a kid because it was it just felt so different. But now you look at it and you look at what we've actually been able to do because writers are allowed to just commit to this whole vision, mm-hmm. and you go, oh wow, we could have gone so much further with a premise like this. Well, and now studios are more comfortable with you love it or you hate it. We're fine with that. Like there's no middle. We're fine with that. And also studios like A24 know how to market a fucking movie. Uh, If there's one thing they know how to do, it's we're going to take something weird or ambiguous, which this is definitely that type of lane. And they're like, we're going to figure out how to market this to make people go what the fuck is up with that movie? I need to know what happens. I don't even care about the movie. I just need to know what happens. They are good at that. So to give you more flavor on how dark this movie was intended to be, we have both from the novelization and from some stuff that Apatow talked about. In the novelization, when the cable guy calls Stephen late at night about Robin, they reveal that the cable guy is making that call from Robin's air duct above her cupboard. That is why the daddy long legs crawls across his face and explains huh. why he is suddenly there to take Robin hostage. Which again, if we know that, oh shit. Mm, okay, what a yeah. better creepy moment. Sure, yeah. The cable guy actually shoots Rick with a staple gun and kills him after Rick exposes the cable guy to Steven. Mm-hmm. So Jack Black's character would have died. Yeah, I would have liked that. <laughs> the cable guy was discharged from the Marine Corps for getting mad at his sergeant. He has serial killer vibes in what Rick reveals to him. So we we hear more than just the, these are the television character names he's faking. Mm-hmm. Also, at one point, the cable guy shoots Steven with a staple gun during the fights. Uh, he pretends to be a volunteer firefighter and hurls a fireman's axe at Steven. During the parking garage scene, they filmed a sequence where Carrie was acting like the Terminator standing on Steven's car, Mm. the T-1000. It didn't get laughs. It only scared test audiences, so they removed it. Mm. In Griffith Park, during the 40-degree rain that they were filming in, the cable guy rode up on a horse like the Headless Horseman, resulting in an intense fight Steven is about to smash the cable guy's head with a rock, and the cable guy implores him to go to the dark side of the force. At that point, Steven knocks out the cable guy with a tree branch, which would occur right before the satellite climax, but the whole scene was cut because, quote, the evil in Jim Carrey's eyes looked too realistic, unquote. (laughs) Okay, so some of these are great. They're great, like very strong visual references, and that's cool. They needed to include some of those in part to show the audience that something is off about him. That's those are some of the things that like the running up on top of the car to look like the T-1000. Well, you have him do that. It freak Matthew Broderick's character out so much. And then we realize, oh, I'm just playing it off for laughs. We watched Terminator the other day. I'm just jerking your chin. You you do things like that where it's like, oh, he he embodies these things a lot more than, you know, just making references and just being a font of TV and movie trivia. That's how you build that suspense. And then you can go into the extra. And then we then we can like peel the onion back and be like, oh, he's actively paying it like stalking him 
watching what he's watching as he's watching it, you know, in his van outside. He's, you know, gone into the apartments, like that type of stuff. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we go along. There, there was just no build up. We just got boom crazy. And the thing is, like, just based on the trailer for this film, you know, it's going to be boom crazy. But you have to make us understand why the Matthew Broderick character wouldn't have like had alarm bells going off. Like you have to like it. Ha- he has to come off as completely benign, maybe a little weird, a little quirky, of course, but he's just benign. He's just a weird dude. And that's fine. People can be weird and still and still be fun, great people. But oh no, there's something wrong with this guy. What I wouldn't give for a director's cut of this film. I don't know if that would be better. It depends on what they have on the cutting room floor. And I assume they never they didn't have enough for Ben Stiller to ever feel like he could, because honestly, based on Ben's track record, mm-hmm. I feel like he would go back and revisit something like this. If there Maybe. was enough and if there was enough there to to redo it. I don't mm-hmm. I doubt there is. But all of this shit is yeah. just like just just the fact that he's making the call from Robin's apartment. Yeah. That little detail alone is enough to be scary as shit. Yeah. It's good. I think even more it would be fun just to be able to read the screenplay and be like what did they have here that they couldn't get in the final movie? Mm-hmm. Where where did they go from? This is the kind of movie that I wish I had a full oral history because it would be fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, the cable guy was originally written to get impaled on the satellite dish at the end of the film. Per Judd Apatow, quote, Jim was very intent on dying at the end of the movie. That was something we could not get past everybody. He thought he should sacrifice and die at the end, unquote. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Jim Carrey does not like the ending of the film. Mm. So I do find it interesting. Jim was one of the driving forces behind trying to make this dark. Well, yeah, I get that. Because not long after this, he started doing some more dramatic films. Yep. He, he pushed in a different direction for sure. Yeah, he, he didn't want comedy to be his only thing. He was too talented for that. I mean, and he still is. He still he still has it. I mean, his career has changed wildly, but it's still phenomenal. Yeah. And I mean, the man is <laughs> he's so elastic. And I don't mean that just in the fact that he's so physical and he can contort his face. But just as a person, he goes back and forth so well. In a world where Jim Carrey does not get paid $20 million for this movie, mm-hmm. I wonder if we had a little bit more freedom to make the movie that would have been much better. Yeah. Well, let's talk about our director, and that is Ben Stiller. <laughs> okay. Before this, he directed all the episodes of The Ben Stiller Show, and then the movie Reality Bites. After this, he made the TV short Heat Vision and Jack, which was Jack Black's first big starring vehicle. Mm-hmm. Then Zoolander, Tropic Thunder, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Zoolander 2, Escape at Danamora for television, and just recently, Severance for television. What do we think of Ben Stiller's directing of this movie? He loves his style. I don't want to put it like in the gimmick territory, but he definitely, when, he, when he's doing a project, he picks a, a style, and that's what he goes for. Like I think each one of his movies looks different. Yeah. Not like in this like big masterful way, but you're just like, there's a clear visual tone to what he's doing. Also, if you've not seen Severance, it is phenomenal. And this darkness is very much in Severance. Again, I, I think his directing choices are, I, I love them. Again, I think it's really hard to tell where the real smart directing choices are. Mm-hmm. Because so much got cut. Yes. The edit for this movie undermines the really good work in the writing and the directing. Well, maybe, but we we know we have script problems. That's just, that's a, we have script problems. Yeah. But then you also have an actor like Jim Carrey, who is fabulous at improvisation. There's a certain element of, I just have to put the camera on this guy and follow him. That That's just a part of it. Ben Stiller is not a dum-dum. He's not a dumb dumb. Also, he understands improv. He does. Because he did it. <laughs> he, he does. 
I mean, to your point, Ben Stiller shot the cable guys more extreme reaction scenes twice. He did it once with a mild comedic take and once with a much darker violent tone. And then he would edit whichever felt best for the scene. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you do. Yep. You have somebody that's that good at shifting tones in whatever direction you want. You go, okay, let's do it twice. Let's do it once with just the wacky comedy version. Mm-hmm. And then let's do it with the creepy version. And whichever plays better in the moment, that's the one we can use. Yeah. And that just lets Jim play. I think it's really the moments that land in this movie land really well mm-hmm. because Ben's doing a really good job of making the scene look good. It's just a matter of the script just doesn't help anything along there at a certain point. Yep. It, it only goes so far. One other fun note about Ben's directing here. Surprisingly, no one at this point had ever set a comedic piece at medieval times in a movie. How is that possible? I don't know. So for the first time, the Buena Park medieval times was shut down for filming. Oh, okay. However... Matthew Broderick is allergic to horses. Oh, no. Quote, I had to really concentrate not to sneeze all the time. Yeah. I like fight scenes and physical comedy, but we were doing it in a string of 16-hour days, and that can be quite draining, unquote. Oh, yeah. Oh, buddy. That sucks. (laughs) Oof. That went to the craft. On the other hand, god damn, that fight scene is iconic. Yeah. Everything about that scene. Is just, it's one liner after one liner. Let the games begin! The blue light rolls! The red knight sucks the big one! You're going down, red knight! Going down, down, down! Red knight going down! Down, down, down! Red knight going down! See, and that's a scene I probably wouldn't change anything for. Because that's where you get into the, oh, this guy is wacky and weird. And oh, oh, okay. We're taking this a little too far. Oh, he's really into this. Like that plays like that makes perfect sense for how they framed this guy. Well, and like, and this is, it's a perfect place for Steven to start going. Okay. Maybe, maybe I need to be a little more careful about this guy. Like this is a great way to introduce Steven questioning his time with the cable guy everything after the karaoke party and the morning after Mm -hmm. because that scene works really well it's the third act coming after that to me where everything starts to kind of fall apart well if you have third act problems it's because you have first act problems okay (laughs) like I'm, I'm going to say the douchey thing, and that's what it is. I, I don't disagree. There's, a, there's, there's certainly setup that needs to be done there. But from just a, from a watching experience, I feel like that's how it feels, is that you're trucking along, you're buying into it. But then mm-hmm. after that point is when it's, you start to go, where exactly are we headed here? Because it, it feels very disjointed after that. Yeah. And I feel like up until then... Plot-wise, you're good, but you didn't do enough dropping of hints up front yes. to then start paying off at the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's where I think like that's a hinge point, especially for Steven, because that's the first time Steven puts the hammer down and is like, get out of my life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about the cast. Mm-hmm. We've said his name so much already. It is Jim Carrey playing the cable guy. Before this, he was in Finders Keepers, Peggy Sue Got Married, Earth Girls Are Easy, Pink Cadillac, In Living Color on television, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Batman Forever, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. After this, he was in Liar Liar, The Truman Show, Simon Birch, Man on the Moon, Me, Myself, and Irene, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Majestic, Bruce Almighty, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, A Series of Unfortunate Events, Fun with Dick and Jane, The Number 23, Horton Hears a Who, Yes Man, I Love You Philip Morris, A Christmas Carol, Mr. Popper's Penguins, The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, Kick-Ass 2, Dumb and Dumber 2, The Bad Batch, Dark Crime, Sonic the Hedgehog, Kidding on television, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2. What do we think of Jim Carrey's performance in this film? I love it. <laughs> I love him in this. I, I desperately need him to play a serial killer. Right? Yes. Like, not in a hammy way, but in a very 
distinct, somebody who puts on a whole different persona, not in the comic book villainy way, but in the, there's the family man and then there's serial killer man. Like I need him to do that. I don't care if it's a movie. I don't care if it's a TV show, but I need him to do that because this like him and horror in that type of position makes so much sense to me. I I love how nuanced this performance is, despite how bonkers it forces him to go from a physical comedy perspective. Mm-hmm. He's having to do a whole lot of physical comedy. Oh, he just just the way he does the lisp, he puts his entire face into it. Mm-hmm. Like and- that's a choice that he made, and it's great. Because normally with a stalker character, there's a lot of menace. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot of creepy yeah. menace. Instead, because partly because this is a comedy, it's way more a thing for this guy that for a long time there's no menace. It's just there's so much sadness. <laughs> like mm-hmm. once you start getting just a hint of his backstory, you're like, oh god, this guy's had a rough go. <laughs> yeah, and not not necessarily in like a really hardcore, gory, grotesque way, but just in a he is so lonely. Mm-hmm. And you can read it all over his face. Yep. Again, I think he's doing amazing. I think it's just, like I said, after a certain point, the choices made in the script feel so disjointed that it starts not to make as much sense by the end. But then, like, even the ending of the film with him wrapped up, and finally they ask him his name, and he says Ricky Ricardo and does the weakest, most pathetic version of a Ricky laugh. Yeah. You still want to know my name? Yeah. It's Ricardo. Ricky Ricardo. Like, it's not just that he does an impression, it's that he's so broken inside that it sounds broken. (laughs) It's just all that little detail shit. That's one of the other reasons I think I loved this movie so much, and and I couldn't put my hand on it at the time because I I was young, but I was just like, oh my god, he's doing such amazing stuff in this movie. Of course, as we said, Apatow and Stiller discussed the movie while shooting Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. At the bar, it was Jim's idea of putting his chest exposed on the glass to reference Midnight Express. Mm. His only writing for that note was, quote, tits on glass on a bar napkin. Okay. Jim fucking carry, man. Yep. Jim's chicken skin impression of Silence of the Lambs was completely improvised. (laughs) Ben Stiller loved it and kept it in the script, but you can tell that Matthew Broderick is completely breaking character. He is very actually laughing at that moment. Uh, How do you not? (laughs) How do you not? (laughs) Can I have your skin? Sure. Check this out. (laughs) Silence of the lambs. Hello, Clarice. It's good to see you again. The whole fucking scene, man. Mm-hmm. I watched it again. I was like, God, this feels like yesterday. While filming the basketball sequence, it quickly became clear that Jim could not even dribble a basketball, let alone shoot one. <laughs> okay. So Ben Stiller had Jim mime the actions and they added the basketballs using visual effects in post-production. All right, that's fair. They did a good job because he doesn't look like he can play basketball that well. He also is just ready to destroy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Or playing prison rules. Prison <laughs> Who could have been better? Mm. We have a few choices here. Okay. Paul Giamatti. Maybe. Phil Hartman. No. Adam Sandler. Maybe. Robin Williams. Also maybe. Even in 1996, a little old for Robin at this point. Yeah, but that would just bring a different flavor to him. I like Adam a little bit better if we're going to try something out here. Mm-hmm. Ben Stiller. No. Yeah, he considered it, but he decided I'm filming this. And he 
especially early on, he really was like, I'm going to place myself as a side character for a role I really feel like a good character fit, mm-hmm. but I've got to direct this movie. <laughs> yeah. He changed that when he did Zoolander, but for a while he was like, I'm just going to be off to the side a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, the number one who could have been better was Chris Farley. No. He had signed a two-picture deal after Tommy Boy, and he still owed that studio Black Sheep. Mm. He would have been offered $3 million for this movie instead of $1 million, and both the money were good enough, and he was interested enough to be the cable guy. He really wanted to do this movie, mm. which again, I think they would have written that different. Sure. However, when the studio heard about Jim being interested in the project, Sony dropped everything with with Chris's negotiation. Paramount had Farley under contract and he was going to be jumping to Columbia under Sony. But Sony immediately was like, wait, we can get the biggest star in Hollywood? Fuck that. Mm-hmm. So Paramount exercised their option. Farley had to go do Black Sheep instead. And we got Jim instead. I, I don't know. I don't think it works for this movie. But... I don't hate the idea of Chris doing a dark comedy like that. It would have been fascinating. It just would have been a different kind of darkness. Yeah, it would have been a different darkness. Chris is very physical and very loud. And it would be interesting to see him play a version of this character where it's very subtle. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 would, be, it would be hard. All right. Well, let's move on to Matthew Broderick playing Stephen M. Kovacs. We have also not talked about him on this show. Not officially, no. Before this, he was in War Games, Lady Hawk, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Biloxi Blues, Torch Song Trilogy, Family Business, Glory, The Freshman, The Lion King, and The Road to Wellville. After this, he was in Infinity, Addicted to Love, Godzilla, Election, Inspector Gadget, You Can Count on Me, The Stepford Wives from 2004, Strangers with Candy, The Producers from 2005, The Tale of Despero, and Trainwreck. What do we think of Matthew Broderick in this film? He's a good everyman. He is, for sure. He's, you know, just your everyday type of dude. Little gullible. A little... little... Doesn't have a lot of self-confidence. I think one of my issues is Matthew Broderick's doing his Matthew Broderick shtick, which is not bad at all for this character, per Mm -hmm. se. However, that gullibility almost plays to a detriment because it's takes way too long for Matthew Broderick's performance to meet the intensity of dislike for this dude Mm -hmm. that it needs to be at. Jim's going full out bonkers. I need Steven to be much more freaked out than he is. And some of this is just Matthew Broderick. (laughs) Well, again, I think it goes more to a script place because you can be freaked out, but you don't want to let anyone know you're freaked out. But then it, like, it has to build. And yeah, it does it's... It. And, and I don't think that's necessarily him. It's the script. I think it's a little bit him. But I don't think that's anything he can do. That's just me seeing Matthew Broderick being like, you're Mr. Cool. I don't know that I buy that you're weirded out by this right now. But that's just me. Hmm. Matthew Broderick said that before he met Jim on set, he was considered for the Riddler in Batman Forever, but he lost out to Jim Carrey instead. Mm. Next up, we have Leslie Mann as Robin Harris. Ah. Before this, she was in a movie called Things I Never Told You. After this, she was in She's the One, Last Man Standing, George of the Jungle, Big Daddy, Orange County, Stealing Harvard, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Drillbit Taylor. I love you, Philip Morris, 17 again, funny people, Rio, the changeup, this is 40, the bling ring, Rio 2, vacation, the comedian, welcome to Marwin, Blythe Spirit, cha-cha real smooth, and the bubble. What do we think of Leslie Mann in this film? She's fine. She's fine. They never gave Robin anything to do in this movie. Yeah, she's just the object of affection, like that's it. (laughs) But it's very fun. I mean, some of it also feels like you're just starting film acting, clearly. Mm Mm-hmm. I think this is also before anybody realized how funny she could be. Yeah, she really got to be kind of a breakout in 40-Year-Old Virgin. For sure. Well, and then also Knocked Up. Like, that's where she really got to be, like, a full person. And, yeah, it was fun. One note, she read opposite Judd Apatow for her audition. Judd read the cable guy's part. And, of course, the next year, in 1997, they were married. No. 
So this is very clearly where they met. That's cool. And finally, I'm not giving you his credits because he's an icon. We have Jack Black playing Rick. I had no idea Jack Black was in this. And he's a delight. I love him. This is, for for a while up until this point, the movie stuff he'd been in was very much a bit character comedy role. Like, he's very much doing, like, you're this one-off weird character. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I feel like we get the Jack Black character. A little bit, yeah. Like, he's still a sidekick, but he's definitely playing a very mild version of the Tenacious D character, mm-hmm. which he was like building right around this time. Tenacious D started around 95, I think. Maybe a little earlier, but like this was when they were really like making headway in the comedy scene. So this is him just like being that weird rocker dude who's a little too intense with his friends and shit. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, uh, you're a baby, Jack Black, but you're coming. Yep. All right, let's move to some Arpons. Arpons, random people of note. George Siegel as Stephen's father. He was a longtime character actor who played Nick in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Said it had been a bunch of stuff. Diane Baker playing Stephen's mother. She had a very strong appearance in Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. Hmm. Hmm. Hitchcock, interesting. Ben Stiller as both Sam and Stan Sweet. What an amazing move. Yep. The best casting for him. <laughs> I loved it. It was very, very funny. It was so funny. And the and the thread they ran through the whole movie. Mm-hmm. That was one of the few points of satire that landed so well. Yes. That whole running gag through the whole film and and just him rolling his eyes and making stuff. And there's a fun little conspiracy theory going on with Sam and Stan that we'll talk mm-hmm. about in the trivia. Okay. We have Eric Roberts portraying Eric Roberts, which is a, at the time, was a very big play on the fact that Eric Roberts kept showing up in made-for-TV movies as killers. Yes. <laughs> Janine Garofalo playing the medieval times waitress. Oh, oh my God. Classic Janine. So good. Who had, in, who had been in Ben's previous film, Rally Bites. Yes. She's amazing in that movie. I love mm-hmm. that movie so much. This, she just gets some of the best lines in the whole fucking movie. Oh, yeah. She just, she comes in, she does her thing, and she goes, love it. Can I get a knife and fork? There were no utensils in medieval times, hence there are no utensils at medieval times. Would you like a refill on that Pepsi? There were no utensils, but there was Pepsi? Dude, I got a lot of tables. Andy Dick as the medieval times host. Mm-hmm. Well... Yeah. I mean, at least he's funny, but oh, God, mm-hmm. what a trash human you turned out to be. Yeah, well, are we surprised? Nope. David Cross as the sales manager. Man, David Cross with hair. Weird. I mean, side hair, but still. Yeah, but it's there. This is classic Mr. Show era David Cross, man. Mm-hmm. Amy Stiller playing Stephen's secretary. This is Ben's older sister. Owen Wilson as Robin's date. Mm-hmm. He's such a douchebag. Love it. Love oh, it. So funny. See the attitude? Unbelievable. Look at him like hysterical now. What were we what were we talking about? Your job. What's that like? What's your job like? Um, it's a little crazy right now. We're just sort of my uh, Hold thing. that thought for just a second. I need to use the head and I'll be right back. I want to find out about your job. I'm interested. I'm curious about it. This is right after Bottle Rocket, too. Well, yeah. And like the vibes in the scene remind me of Luke Wilson in Rushmore. (laughs) Joel Murray as a basketball player. He is the youngest Murray sibling who also played Rumson on Mad Mad Men. Kathy Griffin as the Cable Boy's mother. Yep. (laughs) Because he is the Cable Boy at that point. I love that. The Cable Boy. Emilio Rivera as a jail inmate, he would go on to be Marcus Alvarez of the Mayans MC. Oh, okay. Bob Odenkirk as Steven's brother. Mm-hmm. You have to look for him because he has a voice. It's crazy. Odenkirk never does voices. Yeah, he only has like like one or two lines and then like just like one or two words. But like it's very distinct. But if you're not listening or paying attention to it, you will not catch him. 
because he's doing that straight up stuffy Midwestern suburb voice, which is like the one impression he can do. Yeah. And he also has a lot of hair at this point, which nowadays he doesn't. This is also true. He's wearing a wig for Better Call Saul. Okay. (laughs) Annabelle Gerwich, as Stephen's sister-in-law, she is the former co-host of Dinner and a Movie with Paul Gilmartin. Hmm. Tabitha Soren, as herself, because the MTV news people show up a lot. Yeah. Ricky Kleeman, as herself, she is the CBS News legal expert and analyst. Still going strong on that job. Mm -hmm. Mark Thompson, as a newsroom reporter, he was a weatherman for Good Day LA and then was a narrator for shows like American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance. Mm. And finally, playing a couch potato who picks up a book, Kyle Gass. Of Tenacious D, yes. Every time he shows up, he's just the biggest plain doofus and the perfect foil to Jack Black's wildness. I need him and Andy Richter to play brothers. I mean, to be fair, they played ad execs in the same room in Elf. I know, but I need them to play brothers or lovers. I need that to happen. God, it'd be good. And that is it for the Arpons. Mm -hmm. You'll be surprised to know there are no awards for this film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, let's move on to trivia. Trivia. During his flashback to being the cable boy, the babysitter, or the television, has on Play Misty for Me about an obsessively jealous stalker. Mm. A lot of the in-references with the shows, other than like My Three Son, the obvious stuff, there are some smart references there, but we don't draw a lot of attention to them, Mm -hmm. which is a problem. The music used in the dream sequence, where Jim is got green lizard eyes, is from the opening of the television show The Mod Squad, where the characters are being chased through a long tunnel. Hmm. Every cast member of the Ben Stiller show appears on screen at least once in the film. That cast was Ben Stiller, Andy Dick, Janine Garofalo, and Bob Odenkirk. Hmm. Stiller told Joel Murray, it's like a $40 million Ben Stiller show sketch. And Murray said dubiously, yeah, okay. (laughs) In their fight scene, you can briefly see Owen Wilson break character and laugh while the cable guy is just being ridiculous in there. Mm -hmm. Which, that's an intense fucking fight scene. (laughs) During the karaoke jam, Stephen gives the cable guy a self-help tape by Dr. Jason Swears. Jason Swears was the film's graphic designer. In Germany, Ricky Ricardo was replaced with Fred Flintstone, and Mm. Jim Carrey's imitation of Desi's laugh was replaced with Yabba Dabba Doo. This is because at that point, I Love Lucy had never aired in Germany. That makes sense. Also weird. Yeah. Per Judd Apatow, the manager of a guy named Larry the Cable Guy was Mm. upset by the film. Oh, sure. Quote, before we started shooting, I got a call from this friend of mine who managed Larry the Cable Guy. He said, Judd, what are you doing? You can't call this movie the Cable Guy. This guy's been working so hard developing this character. You're going to destroy his career. There was nothing I could do to change it. But clearly, Larry the Cable Guy has done way better than the Cable Guy. If you had to compare the career of Larry the Cable Guy and the movie the Cable Guy, Larry wins, hands down, unquote. He's mater. fucking hate nascar but let me tell you the amount that i love mater is absurd so much so (laughs) that when a child lost their mater car at my bookstore that i worked at we kept it and i was so happy to get we kept things in the loss and found and after a certain point we threw them away i got to keep that and i was very very happy i still have it (laughs) Larry is doing just fine and finally the voice of Sam Sweet in the 911 recording shown on MTV is not the voice of Ben Stiller it's Jim Carrey Hmm. this along with the cable guy's remark that I hope they fry this bastard suggest that in fact the cable guy may have been responsible for killing Stan Sweet and framing Sam for the murder after Sam rejected the cable guy's friendship, as he was potentially a fan of their television show. Hmm. I love that theory. That's pretty cool. 
It's a fun little twist. There's no way you could do that in this movie, but I'm just like, ooh, ooh, that's sneaky smart. Mm-hmm. That's a fun fan theory. But also, it's very funny how much I always thought that was Ben Stiller. It sounded like Ben Stiller. I was like, it does. Oh, that's Jim. Interesting. And that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, it's going to be coax cables. It's got to be. Unless you want karaoke systems. Mm, I like coax cables. I mean, all about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Just need to find the sweet spot. The sweet spot. Um, I mean, you have to go first. This is your movie. I'm going to go three. Mm -hmm. I know it's got a ton of problems. I, I do get that. But again, to me, the premise is so strong. The performance is so strong from from Jim, and it's so unique in its time. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's so many problems, and that's part of why it's so unique for its time, because they went, well, we have to like hedge a lot on this. Yeah. So it's just a weird entry in the canon, but like I still find it really interesting and a fun watch, and there's still so many fun moments in it. Mm-hmm. That even by the end, you don't feel like you've been too cheaped out. You're just like, oh, it was kind of a mess, but I had a lot of fun watching it. <laughs> it's going to be three coax cables for me. I'm going to go with two. Mm. I mean, one of those is for Jim Carrey. And I think the other one is just a sum of like the other like good performances. And I like the concept, but the execution of this script, which is just god awful. I mean, the script is not good. It's not good. And I love Jim Carrey doing this type of character, and I enjoyed watching the movie, but I wouldn't watch it again. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't watch it. I understand why people like it. That's cool. Like what you like, but like I don't think it's a good movie. There are other better Jim Carrey films. Just don't say it was a flop, because it wasn't. It wasn't a flop. It's just not a runaway success like some of the other things. Well, let's... No, this is a series of hard right turns, you know? It is. Let's go in a completely different direction now to a movie that you have definitely seen mm-hmm. and I have always meant to see, but never have. We're going sci-fi. We're going genetics. Ooh. We're going Gattaca. Ooh, yes. This is a good one. I haven't seen this forever. I never have seen this, never sat down. It was kind of one of those that circled my list a few times, and then I just mm-hmm. never got around to watching yeah. it. I, I love a good sci-fi movie. We talked so. about this one in like doing a sci-fi series so many times. because I'm like, you have to see this because it's so good. And now we're doing the 90s, and it's a great time to throw it in. So love it. let's go from weird, not great dark comedy to unique science fiction. Mm, all right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.